0: Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings.
1: Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, episode number 70. Today we spoke to Michael Bungay-Stanier, thought leader on coaching, keynote speaker, and author of best-selling books such as The Coaching Habit and The Advice Trap, Say Less, Ask More, and Change the Way You Lead Forever. We have a great conversation about coaching and communication. Michael gives some great nuggets on The Advice Trap. It will make you think of advice differently, both giving it and receiving it. We'll talk about staying curious a little bit longer, asking more questions, and the online course run by MBS called The Year of Living Brilliantly. Both Ciarán and I sign up for it. It's really special. Find out more about MBS at www.mbs.works.
2: Hi, Michael. Thanks for joining us today. Where are you coming from?
3: I am based in Toronto. I'm a misplaced Australian. <laughs> I literally 25 years ago, almost to the day, married a Canadian, which is awesome in so many ways, but it does mean that I have to occasionally endure a Canadian winter. So spring's bursting, there's leaves are on the trees outside at last, and I'm in Toronto.
1: Yeah, those, those winters are pretty harsh. I, I spent four years of my younger life in Montreal, so I, I know that part of the world. Like it's pretty cold near Toronto. Exactly.
3: In fact, if you don't get what minus 25 Celsius is like, it's actually impossible to explain it to somebody. I try and go back to Australia and tell my family about what minus 30 actually means, and they're like, we just don't understand. I'm like, you know what? I I get it. (laughs) I barely understand it myself.
1: And where in Australia are you originally from, Michael?
3: I grew up in Canberra, so the much maligned national capital down there. Um, but, you know, I went to high school there, went to university there at the ANU, the Australian National University, and loved living there, but left there now about well, close to 30 years ago.
1: Mm, quite some time. So you're, you're obviously well settled now in Canada?
3: I, you know, yeah, I'd say that's the perfect way to put it. I, I lived in England for a while, the States for a while, but now it's close to 20 years in Canada, and I'm pretty happy. Canada's a good country.
1: Very good. So tell tell the listeners a little bit about kind of what your specialty is or what you kind of try to teach or distill to people these days. Sure.
3: Well, you know, I'm best known for a book that I put out four years ago, thereabouts, called The Coaching Habit. Uh, say less, ask more and change the way you lead forever. So if I become known for anything, it's a way of championing coaching in a way that can be an unweird everyday working no matter who you are, you don't have to be a coach, you don't have to be an HR person, you don't have to be a sports coach, you don't have to do have any fancy title or any particular wiring. Really, I take the stand that, you know what, being more coach-like, which I define as can you stay curious a little bit longer, can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly, is just a powerful way to show up and interact with your team, with your colleagues, with your boss, with your spouse, with your kids relationships tend to improve focus tends to improve empowerment tends to improve and that's what I kind of bang on about
1: and how did you get into discovering discovering that because I think you're exactly right and even I heard you speak there a couple of weeks ago over over another call and I've tried to take on some of those learnings into my own kind of personal life so how did you come to nearly that aha moment a couple of years ago and then I better write a book about it
3: <laughs> yeah you know One of the quotes I love is inspiration is when your past suddenly makes sense. You know, we we all get a bit confused as to how we ended up where we are. We're like, you know, I'm in my early 50s. I'm like, how how did I end up here? (laughs) How did I end up writing books and living in Canada? And then when you look back, you can see the, the rocks that you've hopped on to get to this certain part of the pond. If you want to go all the way back, you know, I'd say there were two key factors. First is I'm a big reader of fiction. And I think reading fiction means that you get taken into other people's stories. And you start to realize that your point of view is not the only point of view. It's not the only way to see the world. You become more empathetic and more understanding that Just because you think it's real, just because you think it's the truth, that might not be the whole truth. And then, on a practical level, David, when I was in my mid teens, I just spent a lot of time listening to my other friends talk about their angst filled teenage lives, because, you know, everybody's got an angst filled teenage life. And I realized that I was pretty good at listening but I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't know whether this was helping or not helping. I didn't know if I could be more helpful in those conversations. So I did some training with a youth crisis phone line, a suicide hotline. And that's what taught me the kind of the first formal training I had around what it means to ask a question, what it means to have the awareness and the assumption that the first thing that they talk about is perhaps not the only thing or perhaps not even the real thing and the power of staying curious a little bit longer. And then, you know, over the years I've just gone, this is something that I think is a really powerful technology, a really powerful human dynamic. I think I have a point of view on it that's a bit different from other people's, and I think I can see why the agony of writing a book might actually be worth it.
1: It's it's a big thing. Like I also I love the advice trap, the advice monster as you put it so so well, Michael, and the fact that we're we're always stuck into that that um that space, I suppose, where we feel we have to give an opinion, even though we mightn't even have a clue what we're really saying, or if we actually <laughs> have the experience behind us to even to even come into the conversation. But a lot of the time we feel like we need to.
3: Yeah. Well, you're right. We just we've been trained lots of our lives to be to think that the way you prove your worth, the way you add value, the way you pass the test is to have the answer. So it's, it's the default response for most of us. And in fact, that's what I mean by the advice trap. It's really worth saying right up front that there's actually nothing wrong with advice. In fact, advice is a key part of how civilization works. You know, it's like let me teach you something useful and specific so that you can get smarter and we can get smarter and you know, civilization moves forward. That's not the advice trap. The advice trap is when you go the way I tend to respond to every circumstance is start trying to think how do I tell them something? How do I tell them an idea or a solution or an opinion? And most of us have that as a default response. That's our advice monster. That's the thing we're trying to tame. It's like the core idea of the advice trap. And that's what we're looking to do the work on.
2: And tell us a bit about the questions. You mentioned them briefly there that someone should be asking. If you're actually on the receiving end of advice, it's often reassuring. How do people ask the right questions so they can give that reassurance, but also get to the, the point that you want to understand?
3: Yeah, Kieran, your, your point's a really good one, which is... It it can be comforting for both parties of the conversation to have somebody telling you what to do. You're like, if you're on one side, you're like, look at me, I'm the smart person. I've still got it. I might be old, but I'm I'm wise. Let me add value to this conversation by telling you random stuff. And if you're on the receiving end, you're like, this is good. I don't have to think too hard. I'm being given direction. I don't have to take full responsibility or accountability for this. I'll just follow the guidance that's been going on. So that can be a convenient way. It can be a really powerful way to work. Let's, I mean, let's be clear. There are times when that's exactly the interaction that's required, but it's also got the potential to be a, a way that you collude to keep both of you in this safe, but slightly unsatisfying role. One person giving the fast wrong advice, the other person receiving the fast wrong advice, but not having to take responsibility for figuring stuff out themselves. So in the coaching habit, the, um, I talk about seven powerful questions that I think are particularly useful. And that if you can start incorporating them into your everyday conversations, you'll be more coach-like. You don't have to literally go, oh, I'm doing a coaching session with you now, Kieran or David. you like, I'm just being curious. And these questions can be really helpful. Now, there are, there are plenty of good questions out in the world. I thought about it for quite a few years and went, I think these are seven particularly powerful ones, but you can pick whatever question you want. And just to give you two two questions as as an example of how well they can work, the kickstart question and the, the learning question. So in some ways, the bookend question pairing. Part of what drives our anxiety and our desire to give advice is a sense that I just don't have time to do anything else. I don't have time for a long lie down on a sofa therapy style chit chat. No. <laughs> times are ticking, life's a mover I don't even have a sofa in my office anyway. So what can you do? (laughs) So there's that kind of like, Oh, we've got to, we've got to make this happen faster rather than slower. And I agree. In fact, I tend to take the stand that If you can't coach somebody in 10 minutes or less, you probably don't have time to coach them. So the kickstart question is what's on your mind. And the power of that is that it is an open question. It's expansive. It, asks them to make the choice so it's empowering but it doesn't say to them hey tell me everything or anything or just random things it says you know what are you most excited about or most worried about or most anxious about or what's kind of eating you up at the moment let's go there and what most people find is when they go and they start meetings or interactions with what's on your mind it accelerates into a conversation about something that's real and important And then if you realize that one of the most important roles you can play, whether you're a parent or a boss or a manager or literally a coach, is actually that of a teacher helping people to learn, then the learning question is particularly powerful because it actually comes with the understanding of what does it take to actually teach somebody. And here's what's frustrating, but everybody knows it. Just telling somebody isn't enough. <laughs> because we've all done that. We've all told yeah. somebody some nugget of gold, some pearl of wisdom, and it's it's gone nowhere. It's been forgotten instantly. And likewise, we've had people offer us advice, solutions, things that might even be useful, but we've ignored them or we've forgotten them, whatever it might be. You don't even really learn when you do stuff. I mean, you do a little bit. You kind of get into the habit of it. But the real power lies when you reflect on what just happened. So the learning question is, what was most useful or most valuable here for you? So, you know, already we're like, what, 10 minutes, 11 minutes into this conversation so far. And what I would ask the people who are listening is, hey, we've bounced around a little bit. I've been burbling on for 12 minutes. What's been most useful or most valuable for you so far? And here's what happens: There's an interruption in the flow from me to you, and now you have to act more actively engage with the content. You have to scan back on everything I said. Was it advice monsters? Was it these two questions? Was it this default response to giving advice? You know, was it Michael's definition of coaching? I mean, it could be any number of things. But what was most useful or most valuable here for you forces you to make the the neural connections that you want to make it forces you to actively engage in the content it forces you to turn content into wisdom it creates a new neural pathway i mean it does all of that so you know if you were to pick two questions those aren't two bad ones to start with the kickstart question what's on your mind and the learning question what was most useful or most valuable here for you
1: that's excellent. Now, Michael, let's just extrapolate that. What's been most useful that you have acquired through all your learnings and lessons and experience through the years that is helping you tackle what is a an interesting time that we're all going through, to say the least? Like the let's let's call it irony. We want your advice. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> I'm robbing I'm robbing a little bit from your book there.
3: I you totally are because because there is a paradox in writing a book about. Yeah, you know, book full of advice on how not to give advice. Exactly. Um,
1: so I'm stealing your style there. So, <laughs> no, like, what would you what would you be distilling to people maybe that you know you have behind you that can help people that are going through what we're going through?
3: Well, I've got no specific advice because I'm at least savvy enough <laughs> to take my own advice around not giving advice. And
1: it's you all know,
3: into a trap yeah. like a, <laughs> I know. It's like, but I do have. I do have an insight that I might want to offer up to people, which is this. There's a part of your brain, the, the primitive brain, the, the amygdala, the lizard brain, as it's sometimes called. It it, it hates uncertainty. It loves clarity. And really, it, it operates at an unconscious level, and it's scanning the environment all the time. One of the questions it keeps asking is, do I know what's going to happen or, or not? And it feels... Calm down if it knows what's going to happen, and it feels, you know, anxious if it doesn't know what's going to happen. And at the moment, you know, we're part the way through a pandemic. We don't even know how, you know, are we halfway through? Are we quarter of the way through? Are we most of the way? Who knows? There's a lot of anxiety around because you don't know really probably about your job, about the economy, about, um, Your your political leaders, about about your health, about your family. There's so much that is um, up for grabs at the moment, or more obviously uncertain. That there's one part of your brain that's just going, "Look, I'm just permanently freaking out now," which means that actually, for most of us, we are all a little bit suboptimal right now because our amygdala is in such a kind of flapping around, inflamed state knowing that the brain is hunger hungry for certainty what i'm worried about and what i try managing myself is over over betting on certainty looking for any certainty it's like i don't care if it's wrong just as long as it's certain (laughs) i'm like okay what i want to do is stay open and what i find is i'm better i find that i'm better able to do that when i work from some core principles rather from my new minutiae. So here's how I have been trying to navigate this time of uncertainty. It starts with a commitment to say, I know that one of the best things that I can do is try and be a good beacon for people. Cause you know, as a facilitator, I know and a coach, I know that people respond to the strongest signal in the room and people not only respond to it but they start to mirror it so if i can be the strongest signal in the room if i can be a source of calm certainty of grounded reality of knowing exactly what of knowing how hard it is right now but also holding the the the, the optimism that this too will pass and we will get through this then i'm of service to those in my life and the way I try and do that is I try and navigate between the light and the dark. So, you know, we all have a different path right now, but we all have a path between the light and the dark. The dark is that place where you kind of move into panic crisis, spiral, anxiety, uncertainty, blame. And we, we see that playing out and we see political leaders doing that to an extent or not. And, um, if you do that, you drag yourself down and you drag others around you. If you're too much you in the light, then you're overly optimistic or you're, you're an idiot about your health and you put other people at risk and you're all about the serving yourself rather than serving those around you. And that's also not a useful place to be. But if you can find the right path between the light and the dark so that you can find a way of navigating there, I think that's helpful it's helpful for me. And what I then ask people is going, so for you, what does that mean? What does that mean to navigate between the light and the dark? How do you show up? What do you pay attention to? What do you do? What do you not do? And maybe that's helpful for people.
1: Yeah, that's very good, Michael. I suppose I just want to build on it to understand a little bit about what makes you tick, because, you know, saying you're, you, you're trying to be a beacon, you know, good vibrations, giving off that that energy, and I commend you for it. It's something we're all trying to do you know and it's difficult you know personally professionally with everything that's going on if you're facing those moments when you know i'm just oh, this isn't going so well for me or something's annoying you or you're just seen a news report or you read something that you didn't like what what do you have in your what do you have in your locker that helps get you get you into the like gets you out of that headspace
3: sure you mean other than the bottle of bourbon um <laughs> Oh well we have That's, a of Jameson beside us here. So it's, fact, much- it's Jameson's a little sweet for me, but each to their own, I guess. So I've got a couple of things I try and do. One is I, I don't try and ignore the feelings, I try and feel the feelings. I'm not that good at that. I'm a bit of a heady guy. I'm not super connected to my kind of the if you like the somatic wisdom, the wisdom of the body. But there's just a ton of good research that tells us that kind of acknowledging your feelings and labeling your feelings helps you better manage your feelings you know i have a podcast of my own called we will get through this and one of the episodes is with um a anthropologist a guy called dr robert biswas dina and the the the, the episode's called how to feel your feelings and it's like let me show you how you do that so that you're better able to manage those feelings. The other thing that I do, and I took this from a friend of mine called Neil Pazrika. He wrote a book called um, You Are Awesome. It's his latest book. And he has a two minute um, check-in process in the morning. And I started doing it and I'm finding it quite helpful. Uh, There are three questions that you answer. I will let go of, I am grateful for, And I will focus on and, you know, to to your specific question that that first prompt I will let go of is a useful way of just pausing long enough to notice what is the thing that's driving you a bit itchy nuts (laughs) and go, how do I just acknowledge it and label it and perhaps let go of it? And sometimes it's a really specific irritation. You know, I will let go of David's irritating body odor or something. Um, <laughs> different David obviously. Um sometimes, or, a big dog. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's more general. It's just like I will let go of the need to be as famous as Tim Ferriss. You know, it can it can vary. Um But I find that's really helpful. And then the kind of flip side of that is the gratitude piece. And lots of people have talked about gratitude and gratitude journaling. For me, the fact that Neil suggests is just a sentence. I am grateful for, you don't have to explain it. You don't have to write paragraphs about it. You just connect to a specific thing you're grateful for. That That can be really powerful as well. And then the focus piece means that I've set myself the most important thing for the day. And it means that I'm just a little less likely to get distracted from all the other shiny objects that are floating around in my life. And I'm easily distracted. So those three prompts from Neil are helpful for me.
1: That's okay. excellent. Yeah, thanks a lot for sharing that, Michael.
2: Um, Michael, you're, you're seen as the number one thought leader in coaching in the world. So it wouldn't be strange to assume that it's difficult to get some coaching from you. But you actually on your, on your website have some great resources, like the Year of Living Brilli- Brilliantly.
3: Yeah, could you just share with the listeners about that? Sure, <laughs> you know, I thank you for asking about it. Um, in the new book, I got really—I ex- I realized that one of the things that I'm good for is I know a whole bunch of people who are great teachers, and you know, I read a lot of books, I listen to a lot of things, and lots of the times I'm a bit underwhelmed by it. But if I find a really good teacher, I get really excited about it. So the Year of Living Brilliantly is a 52-week 52 teacher 52 weekly videos series where you sign up it's all completely free and you get a once a week you get a two to six minute video from somebody who i think is cool and has something interesting to offer plus um another email from me a little later on that week with a little nudge to kind of reflect on the lesson that that teacher might have taught you and you know it's a diverse group of teachers from different countries Um, more women than men, some people of color. So there's different perspectives other than just kind of old white dudes like me. And my theory is something along the lines of, look, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And for the people who sign up for the Year of Living Brilliantly, which they can at mbs.works, you know, not, not all 52 teachers are going to be equally amazing, but I bet you some of them will be amazing for you elm will nudge you and provoke you and have you think about what it takes for you to level up in your own life
1: yeah well we both signed up for it oh fantastic and it it, just to echo again it's um like to acknowledge it, it is a fantastic resource like only starting so we we're not even through it yet but just sharing something like that teachers that obviously have influenced you and that you think of that's a lovely thing to be able to share to a lot of people so um that's excellent.
3: Uh, my pleasure.
1: Tell us a little bit about Curious as to the genesis
3: of the name Box of Crayons. Yeah. Kind of
1: cool, cool name.
3: Thank you. So I started a, this company called Box of Crayons nigh on 20 years ago, um, pretty much when I kind of early days when I arrived to, in Toronto. And it is a training company, it, it works with big organizations typically and helps them move from advice driven to curiosity led kind of a culture shift and you're part of that is giving managers and leaders really practical coaching skills so they can make coaching an everyday way of working and when I first arrived in Toronto I, I knew nobody I'd never lived here before I didn't have any any friends here Oh, actually I did I had one friend here so I was like okay I gotta I've got to get out there and and knock on doors and get known and all this sort of stuff so I ran a, a session for my local coaching chapter called something like michael's three amazing lessons about branding because i had a little bit of experience of that in my my past life i was like let me teach you how to create a good brand what the the essence of a good brand might be so i came up with these three you know unarguable truths about branding and then realized my own company name failed all three of those tests i was like oh no (laughs) I've got six weeks in which I either have to change Michael's three unarguable rules about branding, which is, you know, means that they're not as unarguable as I thought they were, or I have to come up with a better name. And I'm like, you know what? I need a better name. So you was know, a bit of panicked brainstorming, and I came up with lots of different ideas. At one stage, I wanted to call myself. Espresso coaching because I like drinking espresso and it's like I'm cool and I'm chic and I'm Italian, and, you know, Ciao bella and all that, you know, on a Vespa and all sorts of stuff like that. But when I told my friends, I'm like, "How about espresso coaching?" They're like, "Okay, so espresso is expensive, pretentious, stains your teeth, doesn't last very long." I'm like, "Yeah, it's not the it's not the vibe I'm going for." But. um But then when the name box of crayons came to me i pretty much knew right away that's a good name that's different it's uh aspirational it's intriguing um and so it's proved you know um, box of Crayons has, has allowed us as a company i'd say to to you know fight in a slightly higher weight class than we might otherwise do
1: Amazing the power of a name, right? Like that brand name, that awareness. It took you a bit of time to get there. Interesting to hear about espresso yeah. back in forth. Exactly. Different points of view.
3: <laughs> exactly. It would have been a It would have been a different company. Who knows what would have ended up? It probably could have. Would have. It's, it's those little moments, you know. Those you look back and you go, "Oh, changing box, t- choosing box of crayons was a was probably a life changing moment. It really shifted something."
1: Yeah. Now, we obviously reached out to you today because we just love what you do, your kind of insights, your your content, what you're kind of doing. And you've obviously got to there, having been influenced and learned from lots of different people that are part of this year of living brilliantly, as an example. Are there two or three teachers out there in the world that you haven't quite sat down with or had a conversation with that, you know, you'd be interested in sparking a conversation with to then share with the two of us who just signed up to your newsletter?
3: That's an interesting idea. You know, um, one of the one of the lessons I learned from a guy called Seth Godin, who's a marketing blogger and podcaster, and he's brilliant. I mean he's he's inspirational. Um, he was writing about mentors. And he said, Now yeah, I get I get asked all the time, Seth, will you mentor me? And you know, I get that a, a little bit as well and he's like no because i don't have time and also mentoring can feel a little bit one way i'm teaching you but he says look come up with come up with your own mentoring your virtual mentor mentoring board like who are the two or three or four thinkers in your world that would stretch you and provoke you and make you think differently so often it's this mix of different teachers and if you can think of ones that have different expertise that they're not all going to be people who are already agreeing with what you're already doing but would push you and provoke you to think differently i think there's something really interesting in that so there you know there are some people in this world who i think are really interesting and i don't want to do what they do on the surface but i'm trying to learn from them in terms of in principle, how they show up in the world. So I'll give you an example. Um, There's a guy called Brendan Burchard. You know, his website is brendan.com and he's in the the self-help world. And his style of teaching isn't my style of teaching, um, but you know what, he is so good at what he does and he is so good at online marketing and he's so good at building a committed followership and a tribe and a community that I think it's really powerful to to watch and learn from him, not so that I can be Brendan Burchard, but so that I can learn the core principles of how Brendan Burchard scales and makes a difference and has impact in the world. Now, I don't think I've answered your question, but I've answered another question.
1: <laughs> well, well, it's not miles away because I was given advice recently from somebody who I'd look at as a mentor here in Dublin, and he said to me, like, The most important thing is unmentoring, re-mentoring, unlearning, relearning, that he could get maybe just as much from me, which I wouldn't have expected, but while I'm coming from a completely different background. So I was kind of, in essence, I was trying to get around to your opinion of that. And um, so that's, you you kind of have answered that.
3: I mean, part of what I try and take a stand against is being suspicious of your own expertise, because it's probably out of date. And it's probably not that interesting, even if it's not out of date. So how do you stay on your own edge? And, you know, that's so different from diff- for different people about what, what, do you, what you need to learn. But, you know, one of the questions that I have actually literally for me for this year is who are my new teachers? And that's a really great question, because rather than continuing to accumulate teachers in the same sort of area... I'm like, who do, I, who do I not yet know about who I need to go and find and, and sit at the feet of and learn from?
1: Exactly. That's
2: very good. Michael, I might put you on the spot a little bit here, um, but what has been your favorite day of coaching or working with Box of Crayons or whatever it has been over your professional career so far?
3: Yeah, that, that's hard to pin it down exactly. But uh, recently, what, one of the organizations we're working with is Microsoft they're going through this amazing and quite inspiring culture change under their CEO, Satya Nadella, who fundamentally says, look, we need to shift our culture from a know-it-all culture to a learn-it-all culture. So very aligned with this whole idea of becoming curiosity-driven. And we built training for them, which is a virtual um, training, which has been done by thousands and thousands of Microsoft people. And recently... I, um, at their, one of their big sales conferences, um, kind of as a surprise, I was bored on stage in front of three or 4,000 people. And I coached the, uh, one of their very senior leaders I, you know, reports to the CEO. So super senior. And we did, we just did 10 minutes coaching and it was really powerful because first of all, I got a lovely reception from the, the crowd cause they'd all seen my, my teaching videos and liked them. So that was very, you know, it's ego stroking. <laughs> Secondly, um, uh, there was something extremely powerful about uh, watching this senior leader be vulnerable like this in front of 4,000 people. It was an embodiment of what this company is prepared to do to try and shift their culture. But for me, also, just in terms of satisfaction, it really was a culmination of 20 years attempting mastery, you know, because I had to coach somebody. I had to coach them using just the tools that I taught people. So I had to do a really clean example of what coaching looked like. I had to be really present with the person who was on stage with so that I'm actually present and coaching them. I also had to keep an eye on what was actually happening in this conversation so I could be aware of what the teaching points were. And I also had to Manage four thousand people and facilitate them, and bring be a kind of uh, and master of ceremonies and MC for those people as well. So it was a complex situation which went really well. And coming off there, I was like, you know what, that is just comes from twenty years practicing, <laughs> and that was pretty satisfying. So we're
1: ne- we're nearly there, Mike. We have a couple more questions. Just show me my last one, and then it's over to Kiran. That's, you've you've already created such a phenomenal legacy that we're all um, happy to be learning from along that journey. I suppose what is a logical question for me to ask you now is a uh, robbing again from you, Michael. Um, <laughs> what, what next, what's coming, what's coming from your mind in the next six months, in the next three years, five years, what's the next big thing that you're going to share with us all if yeah. you want to share it?
3: Yeah. You know, I, I don't quite know yet. Um, MBS.works, that website is a, a, it's a sandbox for me to, to try and figure some of that stuff out. Um, and I'm trying not to rush into an answer, but just to stay curious about it and see what emerges. You know part of that commitment to who are my new teachers uh, is, is in part asking me, who do I want to be next? You know what's my next thing? I can do a bunch of stuff, but it's no longer a question of what can I do. it's not even a question of so much, what do I want to do? It's about trying to find that nexus between what what would light me up, get me really excited, and what serves the world in the way that is best. And, you know, I'm still figuring that out. So, yeah, stay tuned, I guess.
2: (laughs) Brilliant. And then just to wrap up, we ask this question to all of our guests that come on. What does high performance culture mean to you, Michael?
3: I think it means... Um, first of all, being people-centred so that you are building around the complex, messy, uh, unpredictable human beings that are a part of a culture. So um, not losing sight of the humanity. You know, most of our organisations are kind of set up to try and in the end strip humanity away from people because that's, you know, it's like education got created so that capitalism could have people who worked in factories and factories are set up to be the machines that produce the stuff and, you know, an org chart in 2020 and an org chart in 1820 doesn't look that much different because there's this kind of hierarchy of production. So I think part of high performance is around – um staying people-centered. And then I think the other piece is to say, how do we operate on principles rather than rules as much as possible? What what rules are there for is to try and make the machine behave. What principles are there for is to allow the group of people to self-organize and have good stuff emerge from the complexity of that interaction. And it feels contradictory because you feel like you will get a higher performance if you set up lots of rules. And that is true of machines, but it's not true of human beings. And you have to allow some uncertainty and the complexity. And that means that the messiness and the failure, that will allow true high performance.
1: Michael, from Kiran and myself, David, here in Dublin, Ireland, we just like, say thank you very much for taking Taking the time from your day today in Toronto. Um, really looking forward to seeing what comes out of that sandbox in the next couple of years. Um, we've learned a lot from today. Looking forward to learning from all the teachers that have touched you over the next year.
3: Um, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, guys. It's been a really good conversation. I appreciate it. Cheers, Michael. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person well-being company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at HoworaLife.com, spelled H-A-U-O-R-A-Life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.